One of the things I love about journalism is you can see something weird or unusual on any given day. Case in point, it's February 2002. I'm in San Diego profiling Padres reliever Jesse Orozco, and it's all prearranged. I'm going to spend the day following Jesse around, seeing what his life is like. First, we go to Legoland so his daughter can watch a Jessica Simpson concert. Then we drive home in his big-ass Humvee. A little cat is crossing the street. The Humvee accidentally runs it over. I literally feel ba-bump, ba-bump under a tire. Legoland, Jessica Simpson, Humvee running over a cat. All things I'd never experienced before. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode stars Anthony DeComa, the MLB.com New York Mets beat writer and co-author of David Wright's recently released autobiography, The Captain. This is episode number 182. Let's sling some yang. Dad, being quarantined sucks, and so does the podcast. Uh, well, Anthony, first of all, thank you for joining me here. The reason I wanted to have you on is because you've done something that I have not discussed yet. Uh, I'm more than 180 episodes in, and I have not had the conversation about, I don't know if it's actually technically ghostwriting, because your name is on the cover, but there's a book that just came out last month called The Captain. It's David Wright's memoir, former Met third baseman, and it is written with you, and your name is there on the cover. How did this project even come to be? Uh, It was not my original intention to have this be uh, an autobiography, a memoir, by David. Uh, it wasn't not my intention. Uh, I just had it in my mind that this was a what I thought was a compelling story, a compelling guy, someone I had covered for a decade plus who I thought there was enough there to be a book. And in the back of my mind, as, as a professional writer, I, I always had this idea that I would write a book at some point. I didn't know what that would be necessarily. Uh, I also knew that I didn't want to do a book just to do a book. It had to be something that I cared about uh, to, to a certain extent. And when David retired and w- had his dramatic last game and all of that stuff in 2018, I was like, this, this is it. This, this makes sense. This is the project. So I talked to David right actually before the end of that season and just kind of planted the idea in his head. And, and we agreed to kind of revisit it once things quieted down a little bit. And so later, a couple months later, in, in November of that year, actually, I was out in California where he lives got lunch with him and we kind of discussed it. And that was when we discussed for the first time. And I, I kind of laid it out to you. Like I could write a biography, you know, I would love to have your input on this stuff. Um, the other way to do it would be to do a, an autobiography and memoir. And, and that was maybe not instantly appealing to him, but it was more appealing to him because I think he liked the idea that he could control what went into it. He, he could control the message. He could have a book that, um, was maybe more indicative and more representative of how he wanted to present himself to the world. Uh, not that there are any skeletons or anything like that, quite the opposite, but uh, he had this idea in his mind that this could be something that could be impactful for people in terms of uh, the struggles that he went through of, of injuries and story of perseverance and all that sort of thing. So uh, the more we talked about it, the more it became clear that that was the method we were going to, to do was the autobiography memoir route. And, uh, and that was that. And he was great to work with. He was, you know, anyone who knows David Wright knows he's kind of considered the, the quote unquote gentleman of baseball. And he was exactly that throughout our process. So that, that made it easy, especially for me, a first time author and 
someone who you talk about ghostwriting and how it's different. I didn't have any idea what I was doing. I'd never done it before. I literally have. I've had in, in the course of my career, I'm not saying I'm anything. I'm just saying because I've written books, I've had shitloads of people come up to me and say, oh, I have so-and-so wants to write a book with me. What do you think? So-and-so wants to write a book with me. What do you think? I'm thinking of doing this book with so-and-so. What do you think? Um, and I just don't have that experience. So I wonder, like, you, you sit there, you talk it over with David Wright, you agree, let's do a memoir. Um, what do you do? Literally, step by step, you have this idea, you have this agreement with Wright, we should do this together. So how do you proceed from there? Whenever I tackle a project for the first time, my first step is kind of research the shit out of it and, and try and become as much of an expert as I can before I talk to anyone. Um, and so I did that. And I already had a lot of that done just from my personal experience having covered him. Um, I knew a lot of what his story was. I'd been there for a lot of his stories. So some of that was easy. Some of it was, uh, you know, I, I did learn plenty about, especially about the early parts of his career that I didn't cover. Um, lots of good resources out there from guys who did cover him at the time, whether it was the local newspapers, the Post, the Daily News, whether it was Sports Illustrated, did a ton of great features. Lee Jenkins wrote a ton of great features on David Early in his career. And just kind of reading every, every bit of that. Um, I talked to other people who had done memoirs with athletes. Uh, you know, the one that, that jumps to my mind immediately is Tim Brown. I know he, he had written Rick Ankiel's book, and I spoke to him a few times about just the process. I, I read his book. I read uh, Michael Silverman's book on Pedro. There were, there were four or five books that I picked up and, and if not read in their entirety, leafed through just to see how other people had done it. And then once I'd kind of done all that, that's when, you know, I started scheduling interviews with people. Um, I did the first of many sit-downs with David. He actually has a charity event in Virginia every year, or he did. His last one was last year. Um, but I, I flew down there. This was actually before we technically even signed the deal, but I met his family. I did interviews with his family and just kind of got a lot of that out of the way. And then from there, it was just, you know, my whole thing when I, when I've written, especially when I write longer form stuff features, I, I always want to have more in my notebook than I could possibly use. I want to do so many interviews that the writing itself just kind of takes care of itself. If that makes sense. Uh, when I find myself struggling to write, it's usually because I haven't researched enough or I haven't done enough, enough interviews or I haven't made the extra calls. So obviously for a project like this, I wanted to go above and beyond. And that meant uh, reaching out to every coach, former teammate, childhood friends, uh, you know, just everyone involved in his life that I could. And, and doing, I, I lost count of how many interviews. It was easily in the dozens. And then all of that was kind of supplementary to the main meat and potatoes, which was talking to David himself. And we did multiple sit-downs. This was mostly in 2019 before COVID, obviously. We did multiple sit-downs whenever he was on the East Coast or I was in California. We would get together and then we would fill in the gaps with you know, these like hour-long phone interviews. He had this routine where he would pick up his daughter from, I believe it was his daycare, and he would be in the car for in LA traffic for about an hour. And so, so I would sit down and I would block out an hour and we would talk. And then that would give me enough material to kind of get to the next chunk and, and we go from there and then only after all of that stuff was done did I really kind of sink my teeth into the actual writing part. I think people presume when they read a book like this well I think first the, the base presumption which obviously isn't true is <laughs> David Wright sat down and wrote a book which obviously we know isn't how it works. I think the other presumption is because this actually is how it works a lot of times the author sits down with this subject five or six times 
does a bunch of interviews and turns it into a book. And it's interesting, you do all this research, you interview dozens of people. So you're going to get stuff from those people that David probably doesn't even remember. Oh, I remember the time, blah, 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 blah. Do you then go to David and say, do you remember this happening? Can you elaborate on it? Do you just weave it into the narrative? How does that actually work? Getting memories from other people about the guy whose memoir it is. Yeah, 100%. And I'll give you the perfect example. Uh, in 2009, David was, uh, a lot of Mets fans remember this, David was hit in the head with a Matt Cain fastball, was concussed, went to the hospital, and for the rest of that season and really into the next season, was, just wasn't the same guy. And he was bailing out of home plate. He was really struggling uh, offensively to be that all-star hitter that everyone had seen for years at that point. And I talked to him about it. He discussed it. He was good about it. And later on, I actually talked to Howard Johnson, who was the Mets hitting coach at the time and who had known David for a long time. And Howard told me this story about being in the video room and David kind of getting really emotional and almost breaking down to a certain extent and being like, I don't know if I could do this. And it, it was just a great, powerful anecdote. It was, I loved it. I was excited to bring it to David and be like, you don't remember this. And he didn't remember it at first. And I was like, oh, interesting. And then, so we talked about it. I was like, are you sure? Because Hojo kind of talked about how, how, how much of an impact this had on him. And he was like, I, you know, I, I had so much going through my head at the time that I don't really remember. And maybe a week or two later, I talked to David again, and he had kind of pieced it together in his mind at that point. He was like, I did remember. I think he had actually spoken to Hojo, and they had talked through it a little bit. And he did remember. And, and kind of weaving it in then from his perspective, from what he remembered versus what Hojo remembered, anything I got from something else I would take to David before I put it in print because David's perspective is the one that matters most. Um, but yeah, there were definitely things that David didn't remember or that he didn't remember well. Um, you know, it's funny. There's, I, I've made fun of him about this because there was a passage in the book about how he got engaged and he had taken his then girlfriend to this Christmas light festival in Virginia where he's from. And he kind of gave me the cursory details and, and that was that. And then I had sat down with his wife and, and him and had dinner uh, and kind of asked her. And she gave me the same story, but about 20 times as much detail, way more interesting stuff. And I was like, David, how, how do you not remember this? He's like, ah, she, she just, you know, remembers things better with it when it comes to our relationship. Okay. But it was, it was, that's why I think talking to all these other people was so important because you have to, in all these interviews, you have to wade through hours of audio, hours of conversations that are just, oh, David was great. He was the best. You know, he, I knew from right away that he was going to be a major league player. And all this stuff that's, well, it's nice to hear. It. It's not really usable in a book for those maybe eight or nine anecdotes that are usable and that I think provide some of the best scenes and the best color in the book. So that, that's where that comes from because I, I was under no delusions that David would remember any, any, everything, excuse me. I certainly wouldn't remember everything about my own life. Right. How did you, um, you agree with him to do the book? I don't know how much research you do before you pursue a deal. How did you, um, how did you pursue and get the deal for the book? Part of the problem, I didn't have an agent to start and I knew I was going to need a literary agent. Um, and so I talked to, I mean, being in the business, I know lots of guys who have written books and I kind of reached out and tried to get some leads on agents. And I talked to a bunch and most of them were only interested if it would be a memoir. 
if it would be an autobiography. And at the time when I was looking for an agent, I wasn't sure what direction it would take. Um, but uh, Rob Kirk Kirkpatrick, who I eventually worked with, he was at the Stewart Agency at the time, but he was actually in the process of creating his own LLC. And it, you know, he was interested from the jump, no matter what the project was. Uh, he was a Mets fan. He had a vision for the book that he thought would work, whether or not David was on board with it. Uh, so I signed on with him, and then he had a great relationship with Dutton, the imprint that we eventually went with, Penguin Random House. And he kind of said, he, he, he said before we even started shopping the book, he's like, I have an editor and a publisher in mind that I think is going to jump at this. And sure enough, they did. And they preempted it. So it, that process was actually pretty easy. Um, we really only talked to one shop. They took it and ran with it. And that was you know, good for me because I didn't, I didn't really have interest in getting bogged down on the business side of things in terms of the publisher. I, you know, I wanted a fair deal, obviously. I thought there would be a deal out there to be had. But in terms of worrying about that, I, I was more worried about the project itself and, and the work that was at that point that still had yet to go into it. This is a, this is a writing geek question, but is there a general, I have no idea, is there a general um, split that happens between financially between writer and athlete that is sort of industry standard. So I, I learned this and yeah, it's, it's generally within the range of 50, 50 is, is industry standard. Some, it can go 40, 60, I think generally, you know, with the 60 going to the subject, yeah. um, but 50, 50 is pretty standard. 40, 60 is pretty standard. I think that's generally it. Now, once you get into, uh, you know, the hyper famous subjects out there, if you're doing Michelle Obama's book, maybe that's different. Yeah. But as far as these, you know, more standard ones that you see on a more regular basis, um, I think that's pretty much it. You wrote about when, uh, when you played in the WBC and there's a part here, Ricky bonus had been the Mets bullpen coach and you wrote here, uh, this is from the book, Rick, Ricky had been the Mets bullpen coach since 2012, which was another fun example of the familiarity between WBC opponents. On nearly every team, I could count teammates and coaches whom I knew well. Those relationships led to a little more trash talking than in regular season games, like when I yelled at Carlos Delgado following my walk-off against Puerto Rico in 2009. Playing against friends added extra emotion. So when the new pitcher, Xavier Cedeno, walked Joe Maurer, I looked at Ricky and just shook my head. It seemed pretty clear Cedeno wasn't pitching carefully around Maurer to load the bases and get me out. I decided to take it personally. Cedeno threw me four consecutive curveballs, and on the fourth of them, I hit a towering fly ball to the warning track in right center to drive home all three runs. Rounding first, I stared into the Puerto Rico dugout and tossed my bat in the general direction of Ricky. It was all in good fun, but after that walk of Maurer, I wasn't going to let the opportunity to trash talk pass. For the rest of my career, I brought that game up to him at least once a season, saying decisions like that were why he was a bullpen coach and not a pitching coach. Did David Wright remember the details of that? Or is this you watching the game and then breaking it down and then asking him about it and him going like, oh, yeah, this, 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 and this happened? Both. You know, David remembered the details of the situation with Ricky. Um, you know, he and, and Ricky had joked about that a million times in the years since. And all that stuff he remembered well. Uh, as far as throwing four consecutive curveballs as opposed to you know, maybe it was a, a fastball. Two but that stuff I had looked up and I had researched. I watched YouTube videos of a lot of those WBC games and, and other games. Um, there were instances where he did remember specific details and I would look them up and they would be 100% correct. And there were instances in which he didn't. But the narrative arc 
in terms of his relationship with Ricky and the trash talking and that sort of thing that he all remembered. And it's another example of, uh, you know, I believe in that story. I went to Ricky bonus in the Mets clubhouse and talked and asked for his reflections on it. And he remembered the story. Well, he remembered it. He didn't really have anything to add that I didn't already have. So that was one where, you know, I had the conversation. It didn't necessarily add to the anecdote. Um, but yeah, the, the reason why that at that went in the story was not necessarily because of the hit. It was it was because of the circumstances surrounding the hit and the trash talking and just kind of a, this reflection maybe into the competitiveness that that was David Wright. I'm not going to name the writer because I don't want to insult anyone here. But I recently read a uh, a quote unquote autobiography of one of my favorite athletes as a kid, and someone told me, "Oh, he wrote a book," and I bought it for like two bucks on Amazon, and and um, Hated it. Hated every word of it. Hated every moment of it because I could hear the writer. It was like the writer's voice a hundred percent and it didn't sound like the athlete at all. It just sounded like a writer pretending to be an athlete. And I thought you, you wrote this really well and it doesn't sound like a writer trying to fake a voice of an athlete. It sounds like an athlete's voice. And I was curious how hard is that and how much do you have to remind yourself that it's not your book and it's not your voice? Yeah, well, well, first of all, thank you. I, that was one of the things that probably concerned me most, maybe not worried, but concerned me most going into the process. I, you know, I think it depends on the subject. And David, I would, I would say was a relatively, I only have this one perspective to go on because it's the only one I've done. But I think David is on the easier end of the spectrum just because he is so well-spoken in general. And, you know, I like to make fun of him because, you know, I, I say, oh, you don't have a college education. You know how to write or anything like that. But, it, you know, he is very, he can be quite eloquent. And I don't think it's a great leap to go from that to a writing style that sounds good, but also sounds like him. So that being said, there were definitely instances where, and, and this is more when David would go back and, and read what I had written, because, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that it sounded like him and say, if there's any, I, I said to him, if there's anything that you say doesn't sound like me, say so and we'll change it mm -hmm. and by and large there weren't a ton but the instances where there was was kind of like inside seam heady baseball stuff where he'd be talking about in that bat and i would phrase it in a certain way and he would be like you sound like such a nerd right now this is not how any baseball player would ever talk like say it this way instead and i'd be like okay well all right relax relax and we'll we'll change it but yeah it, it was it was i think other than those few instances, it was, it was kind of easy just because of how you know, well-spoken and eloquent he, he generally is. And, you know, what I would do is kind of, I would transcribe his interviews in full. I would go through and, you know, one of the hardest things was there was so much repetition and you would have to cut large blocks of things. And even once I got everything down on the paper in the way I liked it, I would read through a chapter and realize that I had said the same thing three different times in three different areas. I would have to go through and do it again. But, you know, I would take his words and I would kind of not necessarily, sometimes I would write from scratch, but a lot of times I wouldn't. A lot of times I would take those bones that I had from what he had actually said out loud and maybe just reshape them. In some cases, do nothing to them. In some cases, do major surgery to them just to kind of make everything flow and, and sound consistent. I feel like one thing that I struggle with when I'm writing books is uh, the repetition of sports. Like here's David Wright. He played 14 seasons. That's a lot of times 
in the on-deck circle. That's a lot of time standing next to Jose Reyes. It's a lot of time in a batting cage beneath the stadium. It's a lot of getting up early, drinking a protein shake, stretching, going to the stadium, playing cat, blah, 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 blah. Like the repetition of an athlete's life is not nearly as exciting as I think some people think. Um, is that, is that a challenge when you're writing about a guy who's only 37 and a huge chunk of his life was that exact repetition? Uh, you know, I, I think that's more of a challenge almost on my day job on the beat because mm-hmm. you see so many of the same things over the course of 162 game season, you see so many things. And there's only so many ways you can write a story about Jacob DeGrom being really good. And maybe he does something unique that day that's different, but a lot of times he doesn't. And, you know, I always remember I had a, a sports journalism professor in college and his writing used to be sometimes it's just one of 162. And, and I'm not saying to, to mail it in, but you have to realize that there's not something special and unique about every single game. So I, I think maybe having that background as a, as a longtime beat writer helps. But I, I think the other part of it is looking bigger picture is that if you read the book, you know, yes, there are nitty gritty on certain at bats, but they are five or six of the most impactful at bats of his career. Otherwise, I kind of tried to stay away from that stuff and look at it a little more from 30,000 feet. And I think David's career lent itself to kind of a natural narrative arc in that, you know, the first half of the book is about him working his way up to be a big leaguer and some of the sacrifices he made, some of the things that he did, ultimately blossoming as a star. And then the second half is kind of getting into some of the failures that he had, some of the disappointments that he had, the injuries that he had. And then kind of crescendoing back up to the World Series in 2015 and also that final game in 2018. So I think, you know, it's, yes, the day-to-day can be repetitive, but the year-to-year is not. And there were a lot of kind of milestones along the way in David's career specifically that lent themselves to, you know, points that I would would try and get to in that narrative arc. And and so I think for that, for the reason, it, it wasn't necessarily as repetitive as, okay, I hit 280 this year, I hit 289 the next year, I hit 30 home runs, I hit 25 home runs, whatever it might be. It seems like one of the challenges of writing about a really nice guy who had a really nice career and was always known, you know, Captain America and such a nice guy and such a good guy is I feel like a lot of times, in, especially in book proposals I have submitted and dealings with uh, publishers, is they kind of want dirt and they kind of want, well, is he going to be willing to talk about blank? Is he going to be willing to talk about we talk about Jose Reyes assaulting his wife. We talk about steroids in baseball, blah, blah, blah. Did you have to have any of those conversations? A little bit. Yes and no. I, you know, we both understood and David underscored to me at several times. He said, this is not, he would repeat this to me. This is not going to be a controversial book. This is not going to be a controversial book. And he didn't have to tell me. I knew that knowing him, but you still have to answer the questions. You still have to ask the questions and you know, when we had done, I think it was as far back as the book proposal, you know, we had written it and my agent had said, you know, you have to have something in here about steroids. You know, you have to ask. Uh, it's just, it's just, it needs to be in there. And David totally understood and asked and answered and he, you know, condemned them and said, I would never do it and this and that. And again, not controversial at all. Not frankly, anything he hadn't already said publicly in his playing career. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, when Dutton bought the book, they know who David was too. The publisher, um, the editor, John Parsley, is a Mets fan. He understood that this isn't going to be David, you know, running roughshod over whoever and, and criticizing X, Y, and Z. And, you know, people, um, 
reading the book and gasping at what they read. That was, that was never going to be the case. And I think the audience for the book also knew that that was never necessarily going to be the case. But that also doesn't mean just because there's no conflict in that sense doesn't mean there's no conflict in the book. I think there's a lot of dramatic conflict in the book in terms of, uh, you know, the adversities that he went through physically. Some of the adversities I think fans don't realize that he went through mentally. Um, a lot of that internal struggle, even before the injuries, a lot of that internal struggle of a guy who wasn't necessarily the greatest prospect on earth, you know, not thinking he could measure up and be good enough, various things like that. And then obviously it becomes much more overt once you get into the injuries and, you know, some of the physical struggles that he went through just to, just to grip a baseball bat and get back on the field. So I, I do think there's plenty of conflict, even though that conflict doesn't take the form of David Wright bashing ex-teammates and ex-managers and ownership and, and whatever else. I feel like there's nothing more powerful for a celebrity book than the celebrity showing up at whatever, the Midtown, Barnes & Noble, and having 500 or 1,000 people waiting on a line to meet David Wright, shake his hand, and have him sign a book. Um, obviously, you didn't get to do that. How, how big of a club was that to this book as far as uh, promoting it? I, I've said this to a bunch of people, and I genuinely, truly mean it. If that's the worst thing that happened to me in 2020 yeah. with all this other shit going on, like I can deal with that. Like, yes, I would. I'm not going to lie. I would have loved to have gone to Barnes and Noble in Midtown and Union Square, wherever, and, and had a signing with David Wright with people lined up out the door. And it would have been fun. It would have been great. I would have loved to have had a launch party with all my friends and family and done that stuff. Uh, it probably would have helped sales, probably would have helped the bottom line. But honestly, if that's the worst thing, like I can deal with it. I still have this book that I'm proud of, that I'm happy to have written. And, and that's cool. I, I do feel bad because I still, you know, the book's been out for a couple of weeks now and I still get messages every day. You know, are you going to do signings? Is there anywhere I can buy a signed book? And David was great. He signed a, a billion book plates. He signed pages. They sold out really quickly, which was awesome. Um, and eventually he did have to stop doing that, at least to such a great extent, because he had his third kid was born about a week before the book came out. And so he kind of cut short the publicity. He, he, we knew this going in. He cut short the publicity, cut short signings and stuff so that he could focus on his family. But, you know, I, I, I do wish and hopefully we still can do something, even if just at City Field next year, where fans can buy a book or take their books and, and meet David and, and sign it and have him sign it because you know, it is a piece of the puzzle that wasn't there, but I, I really can't, this, it sounds corny and, and, but I do truly mean it. Like if that's the worst thing that happens in terms of this book, you know, the book's still selling well, it seems to be well received. So I really can't complain. Wait, if you, um, when you, when you agree to the book deal, um, is part of the contract, David will make appearances XXX and X. Is that sort of one of the things that is uh, listed? Yes. And I, I don't, I honestly don't remember the specific, the specifics of what he had agreed to. I think it was kind of generalized knowing that he lives in LA, that he would make a trip or two to New York. He would do maybe a signing or, or a big event in New York. Um, and he just kind of, his whole thing was he kind of always wanted to work it around his schedule because he comes to New York a few times a year anyway. Um, obviously COVID blew all that up and he hasn't left LA in, in months and months at this point. Um, but yes, there was a general expectation when we signed that, that David would do some promotion stuff. And, and he did do tons of promotion stuff. It just happened to be from his living room on Zoom. Before we continue with two writers slinging yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's super excited for Thanksgiving. It's the best holiday of the year. 
all their family together under one roof. Grandma Pooh and Grandpa Dick, Uncle Rex, my cousins Bo, Bob, Steve, Ed, John, Gwen, and Terry, little Petey Shay. It's going to be great. Uh, bad news. No one's coming. Your Thanksgiving dreams are dead. COVID-1, holiday joy, zero. Can I go to 503-sports.com and buy a new Philadelphia Stars Kelvin Bryant jersey from the Kings of Throwback Sports merchandise? I guess so. I'll get over the disappointment. Getting away from the book for a minute, how did COVID, I know how it impacted covering a baseball team. How did it impact your enjoyment covering a baseball team? I didn't realize, I, I did and I didn't realize how much different, how, how much I, I kind of need to be at the stadium. And I'm not talking about from an access perspective. That's obvious that coverage is going to be better when you, have, you can be inside an open clubhouse and talk to people during batting practice and all that. I'm talking about the three hours every night where when I was at City Field for these home games, even just being there sitting in the press box, you could see so much more. But also there's a level of, as a writer, there's a level of adrenaline especially on deadline that just I couldn't get it to come sitting at home for away games, which I did watching them on TV and the game would end and you would do, do your zooms just like as if you were in the press box and then you would write your story. And I found it much more difficult to do that from home. And I, 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 I knew I wouldn't love covering games from home, but I, I don't think I realized how much harder I would find it. So from that perspective, I think it was definitely something that I didn't entirely, uh, didn't t- entirely expect. That you know, when you're a beat writer, and everyone's different, but for me, I've always kind of thrived on deadline a little bit. And as much as I like to work ahead on stuff during the game, and you know, have stuff just the way I like it, so that you get upstairs from the clubhouse, you can bang, 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 you're done. Now, sometimes I struggle to do that. And then once I get up and, and the clock is actually ticking, then it's like, that's when I feel it. And that's when I really feel like I can do some of my best stuff is, is when there's a quote unquote, when there's, you know, a fire under your ass. So not, not necessarily having that same feeling at home was, was an adjustment. You've been covering the Mets for a long time. It's a lot of baseball. Your Twitter feed is basically, you know, this pitcher has been activated and this pitcher this, and should they bring this guy back and blah, 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 which is of course what you're supposed to do. Um, I've asked this of other writers, but I'm always fascinated. Like, how do you, um, how do you maintain interest season after season? And do you ever start thinking, oh, I don't, I don't know, another season of baseball? I've always kind of enjoyed the ebbs and flows. And I, one of the reasons why I like beat writing um, is because there's such a seasonality to it. And that, I mean, by the end of the season, by the end of the regular season or the playoffs or whatever it might be, I, I'm so tired from the grind, as I think most people would be, that I'm really looking forward to just being at home for a while, covering the offseason from home, working from home, doing all that sort of thing. And then by the time you get to mid-February, I'm so sick of being at home that I'm so excited to get back out on the road, even if being on the road means going down to boring old Port St. Lucie. At least you're in the sun for a couple of weeks, right? right. And then by the end of spring training, I'm so sick of Port St. Lucie that I'm eager to just get back and get into the regular season and travel and do all these things. So it goes in these cycles every year. And I think because of that, it doesn't necessarily get boring to me. And then the other part of that is it's, it's different every day. It's different every month. It's different every year. And, you know, maybe there were some, some years there for Mets fans, 2011, 2012, 2013, where it seemed exactly the same. 
but there's always is kind of these different plot points and these different things going on. And, you know, I remember when I was in college, I had, and I've, I've told this story a couple of times, but I had a kind of like a marketing internship at a, at a big company, corporate headquarters. And I was still taking classes, but three days a week I would go there and I would work nine to five in queue. And I just, it wasn't for me. And no disrespect to people who, who do the nine to five grind. I actually have a lot of respect for those people. But I, I felt myself getting so antsy and I love being out in the field and doing different things. I had various other reporting internships that I liked so much more. And I think just that having it, having it be different in that way, as opposed to, you know, being, you know, getting in my sedan and driving to the office and being in my cube for eight hours and going home. It's, it's just something that appealed to me. I don't mind the nights and weekends grind so much as some other people might do. That's obviously one of the main drawbacks of being a beat writer. Uh, but I do like that it's different every day. Let me ask you a final thing. I have, uh, I told you I did a little deep dive to see the first uh, byline by yours and uh, that I could find. October 29th, 2006, the Daily Herald in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, Revolution <laughs> douses fires hopes for title. Foxborough, Massachusetts, uh, Dateline. I don't know if you were in college at this point, and, uh, but it was uh, the bright yellow letters of Gillette Stadium scoreboard burned an uncomfortable truth through the New England night. Revolution 2, fire 1. But there was hope, at least for a moment. Chicago came into Saturday night's MLS quarterfinal as a proud owner of a one-goal cushion, earned in the opener of a series decided not by wins but by total goals. That gave the fire the right to advance to overtime Saturday night and, when that period came and went without a score, to penalty kicks. And that's where the fire's hope burned out. Actually, a little, fla- a little flowery, a little cheesy, that last line especially. but A tiny bit, but no, no, uh, no different than any other really you know, good young writer. Um, and I wonder, like, all right, so we go back 14 years to when you wrote this, and you're this young guy, you know, you graduated from BU, you're kind of new in the business. Has it given you what you expected? Has being a journalist given you what you wanted and what you expected? Or as we sit here in this sort of dumpster fire world of fake news and blah, 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 are you, are you wondering why you didn't go to dental school? <laughs> well, before I answer that, I, I will say a quick aside, because I know a lot of young writers listen to this podcast, and a lot of young writers reach out to me all the time and say, you know, what can I be doing in college and this and that. And that, believe it or not, that story that you've unearthed somehow, I don't know how you found that, is, is a good example of what you can do, because that was, I was desperate to write anything. And I had various internships. I was going to BU in Boston. And I had various internships. I obviously wrote for the school newspaper, like everyone writes for the school newspaper. And one of the things that I did, and, and one of my professors, I think, had suggested this, uh, was I would reach out to various sports sections around the country, sports editors, I would cold call them and ask if there was anything I could do, if there was something in town that they were obviously not going to send a staff writer out to cover. And so that was one of them. The Chicago Fire were playing in MLS playoffs in Foxborough and Gillette Stadium. and I called, I, th- I probably called every newspaper in Chicago and said, are you sending a writer? Because if not, I, I'll do this. I'll do it for free. I don't care. And that one paper, I don't even remember what paper it was, said, yes, sure, do it. And so I got credentialed. Then I went to the press box and I wrote just a, you know, a daily story of, off the game. And it was a clip that I had. And it was a clip that I had that wasn't just my local newspaper. It was something in Chicago. It was something different. It was, so I, you know, I, I don't know if that helped me get a job, but doing things like that consistently when I was in college, I think did help over the course of two, three years towards the end of my 
my college career. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I tell to young people all the time is just do as much as you can. And for every 49 no's you get, maybe you get one yes, and it could be the yes that you need to get a job. So that's a little bit of a tangent. Uh, to answer your question, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy in my job, man. And that's really not just me blowing smoke. Like I, I enjoy it. I, for all the reasons I, I said in my last answer to you, it's different every day. It's, I still find it interesting. I still find it exciting. I still find, you know, especially those three hours every night, 7 to 10 p.m. when I'm watching, sitting there watching a baseball game, that thousands of people are paying good money to get in and watch. Uh, yes, it's a job. Yes, it can be stressful. Actually, probably more stressful than people think at times. But it's fun, and I like it. And this is what I wanted to do from a pretty young age. I knew at least as far back as college and probably even before that, that this was in some form or fashion what I wanted to do. So I try not to lose sight of the fact that I, that I am doing it and that, you know, I enjoy it. So yeah, have I gotten, you know, is, is there nothing that I dislike about it? No, of course, of course there are things. And you talk about the fake news and the general media landscape and I do hate and I bristle when that, that word, that, awful five letter word media is used and everyone's lumped in together as just these terrible human beings because you happen to be in the media. You know, I wish that culture didn't exist, of course, but in terms of what I do in my little, in my little slice of this, I love it. And you know, I hope I can do it for a long time. Let me ask you a final, final, final question. I'm required by law to ask this of most of my guests. Um, what's the best, if you've had one, uh, confrontation you've had with a subject in your career? I've had a couple public relatively public ones. And I think one that I get asked about the most would be, this was just a couple, one or two years ago, and Noah Syndergaard called me out on Twitter for something I had said about him not being available in the clubhouse after the game, and he took offense to it. And, you know, people kind of assume that we had this big blown out, but, but drag out kind of thing. And I have found that if you just talk to players as, as a human being, like maybe sometimes they won't see your point of view, but maybe sometimes you will. And the next day after that happened, I waited for Noah. He was out throwing a side session and we were in San Francisco and I waited for him in the dugout and he saw me and he made a beeline right for me. And he, you know, we talked it out for like 20 minutes and the end conversation was we didn't necessarily agree with one another, but we walked away, I think with a mutual respect for one another. And that goes a long way, especially with a player that, you know, you're going to be, you have covered for a long time that you're going to be covering for a long time. So, you know, everybody wants these confrontations to be these big career altering knockout blows. And, and maybe in some cases they are, but I've never really had one where I've walked away and had a relationship just torched forever. Like I've tried to find common ground. And I think, especially as a beat writer, when you're going to be in there every day, and you're going to be writing negatively about these guys sometimes, uh, you know, you have to be able to walk that line where you're maintaining relationships as well. Wait, I need to go down this rabbit hole a little bit. So I found July 19th, 2019, you tweeted, after one of the tougher Met losses of the season, there's a pretty stark difference between losing pitcher Chris Mazza, who stood in front of his locker and answered every question, and starter Noah Syndergaard, who bolted the clubhouse without answering any. And he responded, this is what you go with after a tough 16-inning marathon loss. Anthony, I've been nothing but respectful and professional with you over the years. If you had an issue with me, talk to me in person like a man. This is below you. You've changed our relationship in one tweet. Congrats. Now, I don't know. Can you make the argument he has a point? Yeah, for sure. And, and I, I said that to him. I could see it from his perspective that it, 
you know, if I could go back and do it again, would I have called them out publicly that night? No, probably not. Um, but, you know, it also wasn't necessarily the first time we had had access trouble with him, the first time he had blown things off that we in the media had expected him to do. And not that he has to, not that he's under any obligation, but I do think, uh, you know, one of the big things that people say, and, and I really try to refrain from putting that stuff publicly on Twitter or wherever else, because most fans will be like, who cares? Shut up, do your job. Like, they're always going to side with the player. 98% of the time, they're going to side with the player. Um, but I do, so, but the one of the things the fans say is, so, so why? So who cares? And I think that tweet is kind of the big reason why is because, you know, Noah is obviously a super prominent member of that team. And when it falls instead to a guy, Chris Mazza, who I don't know if that was his first career starter, he hadn't been in the big leagues long. He was an older rookie, you know, not his job to kind of say state of the team stuff and to kind of stand there and take the, take the tough questions and take the bullets, so to speak. So, you know, that's the reason why is, is if you're a veteran player and if you're a leader on the team, you stand there and you deflect so that, you know, the younger guys or the other guys don't have to. And that was the point I was trying to make. I probably didn't make it in the best way I could have. And that was the conversation that Noah and I had the next day. And like I said, I think we walked away with not necessarily in 100% agreement, but I also wouldn't want to be in 100% agreement with every player that I cover on every subject. If I, if I was, I'm probably doing PR more than I'm doing journalism. So, you know, I think if I can walk away with a mutual respect, uh, despite a disagreement, then that's, that's always going to be my goal. All right. Uh, thank you for appearing on this show. Man. I really appreciate it. I want to thank today's guest, Anthony DeComo, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Anthony on Twitter at Anthony DeComo and read his work at MLB.com. Music is by the dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.